The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Good morning. It's good to see you again, or rather I should say, I guess it's good to be seen by you. Uh, on this Easter morning, I just want to say how good it is, how happy it makes me to be connected with you again in this way, and that I hope this Easter message finds you healthy and safe. I want to start out today by talking about how uh, Easter kind of begins in emptiness, the emptiness of that tomb, the way the story is told slightly different in the four different Gospels is that Mary Magdalene and the woman who's called the other Mary, or sometimes simply they're called the women, uh, arrive at the tomb and they find it empty. And at first, maybe just imagine how shocking this would be. Like, where is he? Where is the body of the person we cared about that we called Jesus? Where is he? The story begins in absence, in emptiness. But as the story unfolds, we see that that emptiness actually creates the conditions for a larger sense of presence and connection. One of the things I love about the Easter story is that it helps me make sense of what the wonderful author Anne Lamott says when she says a lot of her theology is about grace bats last. That's what I think Easter is about, that yes, death is a part and a presence in life, and sometimes, especially like at moments such as we're all living through, it can feel like a really strong, scary, and at times overwhelming presence. But that the Easter story says that love ultimately is larger and can overcome the presence of death in our lives. And that as Unitarian Universalists, we are all invited to make the many meanings of that teaching that apply most fully to us so it makes sense in our own hearts. So when I think of the empty tomb today and the kind of uh, <clears throat> shocking nature of it, I think of all the empty spaces that surround us, all the formerly full places that we now see perhaps we occasionally walk in or we see on the news, that now look so barren and deserted. There's a whole bunch of writings online that I've seen recently that are really kind of beautiful in their analysis of what these empty spaces mean. And one of them that I love so much is by a Massachusetts poet named Ann Boyer. And she encourages us to see these negative spaces or these empty spaces and to see them not just in the way that we sometimes see our positive spaces, all the things that we can do, but to see these negative spaces, the, the things we are not doing, as full of brilliance and love. That in these empty spaces we can see our caring, our desire to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe, and also not to spread the virus, the desire to keep other people safe and healthy and whole, that we can see in these empty spaces an expression of love and our belonging to each other, even though we are distant from each other. In the emptiness of our spaces in the age of COVID-19 and coronavirus, I'm connected back to that story of the empty tomb. You see, because for me, I don't think the most compelling part of what Easter is about is an argument for the survival beyond death. That's part of what Easter is about, uh, but I don't think 
Easter particularly has to do with uh, kind of having a right doctrine or a right theology. And so many of the world's traditions uh, kind of postulate or hope that there is a life beyond death. So I don't think it has anything to do with right belief. But actually, I don't really think that's what Easter is about. It is not about the immortality of the individual soul surviving death. No, rather, what Easter is about is about people and families and communities who, in the face of death, continue to live. That's what Easter is about most fully. And to see how this is so, we have to go back in that Easter story in the <clears throat> Christian scriptures to go to that moment a few days before Jesus' death through the quote-unquote what's called the Last Supper. And I kind of want us to move beyond the artistry or the iconography of that and just kind of recognize this is a dinner between friends. You know, they might have been called the apostles or the disciples, but these are Jesus' friends. These are the people most important to him who he wasn't going to see anymore. And so just kind of put ourselves in that setting. And he asked them to do something so human, so humane, so open-hearted. He asked them essentially, will you remember me? Could there be anything more human than that, right? Will you remember me while I'm gone? Don't forget me. And he says, specifically, would you remember me? Do this in memory of me, he says, through these commonplace things. Through, yes, representing the body and the blood, but it's bread and it's wine. It's basic stuff. And yeah, I know there's an argument between Protestants and Catholics, but as a Unitarian Universalist who grew up Jewish, I don't really have a, uh, excuse me, a, a dog in that hunt. Um, so, beyond literal or metaphoric or symbolic, I think there's something essential in this practice of the Christian community that is not just limited to the Christian tradition because what it says is that the most commonplace things, bread and, and something to drink, that these things are sacred because what they represent to us and what they bring back to us is that ongoing connection with people we have loved who have died so that we remember how truly connected we are with each other, that there are unbreakable bonds and ties that bind us to each other that can never, ever be severed or cut off. I had one of these memories <clears throat> like this my past, past week. Friday would have been my mother's 74th birthday. She died 27 years ago, unexpectedly, unnecessarily. But one of the things I was thinking of this past week was was these, was my hands. You see, like all of you, I hope, we're washing our hands a lot for safety, for health. It's the single most important thing we can do. Um, but also, I'm the primary food preparer because I like to cook, good at cooking. So I'm the primary food preparer in my household, which means I am washing these a lot. And I've been noticing how unbelievably dry my hands are. And so I've been moisturizing my hands a lot. And that's what connected me back to my mom. Because my mom had this very specific kind of hand moisturizer that she always kept in the glove compartment in our car. And my younger sister and I, we could always tell from the back seat when we were getting close to the end of our journey. Because my mom would pop open that glove compartment and she would take out that 
um, hand moisturizer and she'd just start slathering in our hands. And the thing is, that stuff didn't smell very good. Like it had this metallic acrid smell, but my mom swore by it. I can't remember what the name of it was, but she used to order it by the box full. And it had a, a white container and a black top. And it was the only kind of hand moisturizer I ever remember her using. And so over 27 years later, I can smell that kind of acrid smell of her hand moisturizer and it brings up a feeling of love and connection. And it also brings up something else, something that I've shared with some of you in the past, I think. And it's a practice that she taught me that over the years I've shared with other people who I love. The practice she taught me when I was very, very young. It's one of my first memories of her maybe like three or four years old. And I specifically remember as we were crossing the street. You know, kind of a scary thing for a three or a four-year-old. And so she would take my hand. And by the way, I want to model a good sanitizing of our hands here. So I'm going to just make sure I'm clean here. I don't know where these hands have been. All right, so now, now we can proceed. <laughs> so my mom would take my hand in hers. And we cross the street. And then we'd get to the other side. And she would squeeze my hand three times. One, two, three. And I would squeeze back four times. One, two, three, four. And that was kind of our wordless language for her saying to me, I love you. And me saying back to her, my little hand, I love you too. The last time I remember us doing that was in the year that she died at my college graduation, which was kind of an emotional nightmare in a lot of ways. I mean, a fun time, but also like, you know, preparing to leave college and there were a lot of feelings. And I remember we were walking across the quad the night before I graduated and we were holding each other's hands. And kind of out of nowhere, she just squeezed my hand. I love you, and I love you too, back. That stays with me so much because it was her, again, wordless way of letting me know that even though our hands would have to part, as inevitably all our hands must part from those that we love, and she didn't know that she was dying when she first taught it to me, what she was teaching me was this essential human skill, how to hold on, how to let go, how to be connected, even when we're separated, even by death. It was a parting gift for what never can be parted. She was saying in many ways, do this in memory of me. And I still do to this day. It reminds me of the words of a poem I used last fall for our annual All Souls Day service, very moving service, one of the highlights of our year at Wellsprings, I think in many ways when we build that memorial altar and we process past it and on it are all the names, faces, um, people we loved, have lost, 
who are still with us. And in the message for that day, I took from a poem that was called Epitaph, with this specific line. Love doesn't die. People do. Love does not die. People do. I think at any moment that we can practice that sense of teaching, that Easter faith, it doesn't require belief. It's more commitment and practice of connection. Whenever we can do those do this in memory of me practices that connect us, I think we remember that we all have ties that even death cannot break. Think of your loved ones, their essential qualities, the people who you love the most, and what was most important to you about them. And recognize that, of course, the sting of their death perhaps is still here for you this day. And it may bring up tears or sadness. And perhaps, if it does, there is also a sense of connection. That their love, their essential qualities don't die. Now, you know, if we were in Bell Hall back at Wellsprings, I might say for a moment, stop and pause and think of that. Stop, maybe stop and think of the keepsake or the mementos or the pictures or the trees or the plants or the places where your loved one's memories rest. And think of that for a moment. But here's the thing. Maybe we can take advantage of the fact that we're not in Bell Hall. And today, because I imagine that many of you are watching this from home, maybe you can look around the room and you see reminders, that picture, that photograph, whatever it is, that lets you know that the connection with those you loved who have died still abides with you. Or maybe it's not even an object. Maybe it's just who you are, your body, your blood. <laughs> um, the way that you laugh, the way that you smile, the way that you incline the ear, but not just the ear, but the ear of the heart to listen to those that you care about who are still here with you. In all of these ways, we can scratch the surface of who we are and find that we have been given gifts by those we loved to remember them and do these things in memory of them and to remind ourselves that their Love does not die and stays with us. This, I think, is one of the most important things we can remember in our healing from our griefs. And perhaps as we move through this time of COVID-19, we really know how important this is to be able to do because for more and more of us, we would become more and more familiar with the losses of this time. And to remember that, yes, eventually the healing of grief comes so that the death and the pain of the death does not overshadow the life that was lived. But it's not just about letting go. It's not just about moving on. I think even more, it's about integrating, carrying the meaning of those lives that we have loved with us and integrating them fully into what matters in our lives bringing those essential qualities into who we are right this very day. Now, one of my favorite books that I've been reading recently that kind of gets to the heart of this is this book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief by 
David Kessler. Now, David Kessler worked and knew Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was famous for uh, kind of putting forward there are five stages of grief, loss, and death, ours or the people that we love. And David Kessler in this book takes great pains to say, you know, that's not linear and it's not even necessarily universal. It's just very common that these feelings, you know, struggling with depression, sadness, bargaining, wishing otherwise, anger, and then eventually, you know, acceptance. But again, not a straight line at all, not linear. He says that that shows up for so many of us. And here's the thing. He wants to pro propose a sixth stage or step in healing from grief. And he calls that finding meaning. What I'm talking about here today is that doing in the memory of, integrating those we have lost into our lives. And I wanted to share a couple of these stories in closing today. One is from another deeply disruptive time in the life of our country, different from now, but still kind of bringing up echoes, if you will, from then to what we're experiencing now, was September 11th and the days and months afterward. And this one is about Liz and Steve Alderman who suffered a just horrendous loss. The death of their son Peter, who was 25, who on the morning of the attacks of September 11th was on, I think, the 107th floor, the Windows of the World restaurant that used to be on top of one of the Twin Towers, and he was killed. Now their son was so young, only 25, as I said, and was taken in an act of terrible violence and suddenly no preparation. They didn't get those final goodbyes with him. And they had times after he died in which they wondered, could they really make it? Could they survive without their son? And one of the things that helped them find their way through was one night they were watching the news and there was a report on other people who had survived acts of political terrorism, of political violence or mass violence. And what the story was about was about survivor's trauma. How sometimes people are so overwhelmed by what has happened to them that their lives become so deeply interrupted by the trauma that it's as if they're ensnared in that web. And it's fully, they said, like one-sixth of the world's population has experienced some kind of this trauma, political violence or terrorism. And so what the Aldermans did is they decided to set up and launch what they call the Peter C. Alderman Foundation, which provides mental health care, staffing, and serious money behind it to care for trauma survivors in places like Cambodia, Kenya, Liberia, to help people heal. And this is what Liz, Peter's mom, said. If we can return some of those people, the people who've been traumatized, if we can help return some of them to life in Peter's name, there is no better memorial for Pete than that. If we can return some of these people to life in Peter's name. That, I think, is an Easter faith beyond any doctrine, beyond any dogma. It is a way of being in the world. It is a do this in memory of me that can help people integrate even the most saddening and sorrowful losses. And one more story I wanted to share with you. 
It's from Carrie Fisher, beloved to us as uh, Princess and then Commander Leia. I think I got that right, Commander Leia, yeah. Um, you know, Princess Leia was someone I grew up with, and Carrie Fisher was someone who I really admired a lot. I know many of us did, and if you know anything about Carrie Fisher, you knew that she... Um, she could curse a blue streak. She could be really profane. And so the story I'm going to share with you doesn't actually have any cursing with it, but it has her distinct style of humor. You might know this, that Carrie Fisher loved the Northern Lights, but she never got to travel to see the Northern Lights with her beloved daughter, Billy. And so Billy, after Carrie Fisher died, took a trip to see the Northern Lights in memory and in honor of her mother. And this is what she wrote. She called her mom a specific name. She called her Mombi. She said, Mombi had an otherworldly obsession with the Northern Lights, but I never got to see them with her. And so we journeyed, after my mom's death, we journeyed to Northern Norway to see if we might, and this is the kind of funny profane part, to see the heavens lift up her dark skirts and flash her dazzling privates across our unworthy irises. And the Northern Lights did. And then she returns to addressing her mom. Mombi, I love you times infinity. Do this in memory of me. This is beyond simply just a day of this holiday, however you choose to interpret it or whatever meaning it has for you. It is about recognizing that when we do these things in memory of, we are carrying on holding within us the essential qualities of those we have loved who have died. We are testifying to the fact that yes, there is sometimes emptiness all around us, and sometimes in the deepest places of our grief we find that emptiness within us. But also, also we can testify to this truth, that every emptiness holds within it a presence of love, of connection, of belonging to and with those we love that can never, ever be parted from and who we will always be connected to. Amen. And may you live in blessing. And I wish you all a happy Easter. Would you uh, please unite your hearts with mine in prayer? You can close your eyes if that is comfortable for you, assuming the pose or position of prayer that is most meaningful for you. And so wherever we stand or wherever we sit in this moment, recognizing the sacred breath the spirit, the spirit who's here in our lungs, giving us life and us giving the breath back, holding on and letting go right now in this very moment. It's already the template of our lives. We don't so much have to learn it as just practice it. Holding on and taking for a moment what is ours and then offering back and then seeing the cycle repeat itself. So as we hold on and as we let go, we recall in this moment those most beloved to us who have left this life. May we recognize 
how we still carry the meaning of their lives. How that meaning does not ever die. And how they never die. Because we can carry this meaning, this love, this connection forth into all parts of our lives. They are here with us. In fact, for so many of them, they made our own lives possible. May we live today in their honor. May we do these things, whatever these things are for us, in memory of them. And may their love truly lift us up. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.